morning. Kids, how we doing? Y'all don't sound very excited. Kids, how we doing? Good. Good. Hey, I, I want uh, to try something. If you are a children's church teacher, would you stand up? If you teach children's church at all, would you stand up? Kids, do we love being in the service? Yes. But do we love our children's church teachers? No. Yes. Do we love our children's church teachers? Can we say thank you? Okay, really big and loud on three. One, two, three. Thank you. All right. Hey, you guys can have a seat. Listen, kids, we love to have you in the service. And I do have a bag of candy back there after the service. So you know what that means, right? You got to take your children's bulletin. You got to fill it out. You got to pay attention and bring it to me and you'll get some candy. We also love children's church. You guys love children's church? Okay, well, you need to do a good job of making sure your teachers know that you love them and that you respect them and that you're happy to have them. So find somebody today, tell them thank you, give them a big hug, okay? If you're sitting right next to one, you can just do it right now. Oh, She doesn't count. She's mom. You got to find somebody else. <clears throat> All right. Today we are in Romans 6. We are back on pace. And if Romans has taught us anything, it has taught us what? Mankind has problems, daddy issues. Mankind has daddy issues. The world's a messed up place. If we had any illusions about that, guess what? Man, the last week, the world's still a messed up place. Things are not getting better. We can point a lot of fingers when it comes to diagnosing the problems, right? Politics, social activism, all kinds of things. Abortion, gay drag queens, all kinds of problems out there, right? Those are things that are largely outside of our control. What is wrong with the world? It's not just out there, it's in here, right? We are what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? Sin. Sin is what's wrong with the world. Our first father, Adam, that's what it goes all the way back to. He sinned against God. He ate the forbidden fruit. He brought sin and death into the world. And we are each born in sin and live under the curse of sin and death. He turned everything on its head. We were made to worship God. And he turned around and submitted his life to the serpent, to the snake. Everything's upside down. And we have been bearing the fruit of that ever since that day. The curse is what explains the world today. And like we said last week, it's kind of like gravity. You don't have to like it. It can hurt your feelings. It doesn't matter. Gravity doesn't care. What goes up must come down. It's just the way things are. Sin's that way too. We don't believe in gravity because it makes us feel good. I wish I could fly, but I can't. I won't sing again. I didn't really sing. <clears throat> just kidding. We don't believe in gravity because we even understand it. Not because it makes sense to us, but because it makes sense of the world. And the same is true of sin. Sin doesn't care. It's just the way things are. We all do things that we regret and are ashamed of. We all have done things that we regret and feel guilty about. We have done things that hurt ourselves. We have done things that hurt those we love the most. We have been hurt by those who should love us the most. This is just the way the world is. 
We live in a world of sin and evil and corruption, and we are part of the problem. So we don't believe in the doctrine of sin because we understand it all, because it makes sense to us, but because it makes sense of us. We've spent months reading very specific things in Romans that explain everything about ourselves and everything about the way the world works. The problem is sin. And the Bible says because of this, we're all just, are not just under a curse and worthy of death, but we deserve the wrath of God. And we all believe in that too, and we all actually want that in one way or another. Because we all have a sense that things aren't right, and we want justice. We want things to be right. We want there to be a just world. We just don't want to be implicated in the problem. Sin, evil, injustice, not just in the world, but infecting us and causing us problems. But it's in the world because it started inside each one of us. We are the ones that cause the problems. We are the sinners. We are what's wrong with the world. But the good news is there's also an answer, an answer that's bigger than the problem of sin, and that answer is grace. Jesus came to die the death that we deserve and to give us the life we could never earn. He came to bear the punishment for us and to free us from the guilt and condemnation of sin, and that is called, do you remember the word? Justification. And we receive it by faith as a gift of God's grace. So everyone in this room is either in Adam, our first father, or in Christ by faith. We're either under the reign of sin or under the reign of grace. We're either standing in the condemnation and guilt of our sin or we are justified, standing in the righteousness of God. We're either headed towards death or we're headed towards life. Now today we're beginning to talk about another aspect of what it means for us to be under grace for what it means for us to be saved. Because freeing us from the guilt and condemnation of sin is only a partial solution. It's only part of the problem. It, may, it solves the problem of our guilt, but it doesn't solve the problem of the sin that's still in my heart, or the sin in the world for that matter. There are two other aspects of our salvation that we need to talk about and are going to be opened up to us as we work through Romans. So we've spent weeks talking about justification. Today we transition to, to another big word, and that's sanctification. And from there we'll move into another big word called glorification. Okay? And that'll come later. So just as a placeholder, justification, that we may be free from the guilt and condemnation of sin. Sanctification, that we may be free from the power and slavery of sin in our lives. Glorification, that we may be free from the presence of sin at all, ever. Okay, those are the three aspects of how we're saved. Once past tense, I have been saved from guilt and condemnation. I have been forgiven. One is present tense, I am being saved from the power of sin in my life. One is future tense, I will be saved from the presence of sin. Okay, so here's the question this morning. Are you a slave or are you free? Are you a slave or are you free? When we tend to think of freedom, we tend to think in terms of what? Freedom from the rules. Freedom from the law. Freedom to do whatever we want to do. And what do we want to do? Sin. And when do we want to do it? Now. 
That's just the way that we are. And we're tempted to look at our lives that way, especially when we hear about the grace of God to us. I've been forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. Okay, cool. That, I guess that means I can just do what I want to do. In fact, in the last chapter, he said, wherever sin reigns, grace abounds. And grace is good, right? So let sin reign so that grace may abound. That's one of the first things that happens to us when we begin to wrap our head around how comprehensive and complete God's grace is to us when it comes to forgiving us of our sin. So that's what he's going to turn to address right now. So Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There it is. That's the question we all want to ask, right, when we begin to believe in the grace of God. You mean there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God? Well, let's test that. You mean God's grace is limitless? Let's see where the limits are. Let's prove it. Here's the answer. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, here's what Paul says. God's grace is free, but if you meet Jesus, you do change. He changes you. Have you ever heard somebody talk this way, Jesus is my Savior, just not my Lord? It used to be a very popular way of thinking several years ago, maybe a couple decades ago. I think it's still around. I think it's still around Evansville. And this is part of how you hear it uh, come up. Well, I know that little Timmy, when he was six, he, he, he got down on his knees in the bedroom and he prayed a prayer. So I know that little Timmy is saved. Little Timmy is saved because once you're saved, you're always saved. And he prayed a prayer when he was six and he held my hand in, in, in the bedroom. The problem is little Timmy is now Timbo and he's doing time for aggravated assault. And there's no proof in his life that his, his heart was ever changed or transformed by God. Yeah, but he prayed the prayer and that means he was forgiven and saved and once saved, always saved. Yeah, but was he changed? Was he transformed? You can't have been saved without being saved, without being changed and transformed. And this is what Paul's talking about here. There's confusion that maybe some of us have about this sort of thing because the Bible talks about being saved in all three tenses. I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. But it's talking about three aspects of our salvation and they all go together hand in hand. They can't be separated. We can get confused, we can think we can have the one without the other. I don't need to be saved, I'm already be, I've already been saved, and once saved, always saved. All my sins are all gone, I can do what I want. But that's not how the Bible talks about it, and that's not how Jesus saves. 
Jesus saves comprehensively. He doesn't just save us from the guilt of sin so that we can go on sinning. He saves us and transforms us, and we are saved, and we continue to be saved. He's not just our Savior, He's our Lord, and we want to submit to Him because He loves us and cares for us and rules over our lives. He's our Savior, He is our Lord, and He wants what's best for us. And the whole point is we were out there screwing it up. We are making a mess of things for ourselves, for other people. We needed to be saved, and Jesus saves us from ourselves so that we're not just forgiven, but we're free to align our lives with His perfect will for us. If you've been reconciled to God through Christ, it means your heart has been changed. There's a relationship there now. There's a Father who loves you, who cares for you. You're a child of God who lives to please His Father. We're all wired that way. We're all wired to please our Father. So the question, maybe, is who are you living to please? It will say something about the state of your heart. Is God your Father, or as Jesus accused the Pharisees, is the devil your Father? Who are you living to please? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. But here's the truth. All of us, all of us, everyone in this room is tempted to have places in our lives where we give ourselves permission to act like Jesus is not king. What are some of those ways and places in your own life that you're tempted to let yourself run? You have them. We all do. Be honest about them. Maybe they're actual physical places in your life. Like, I have one. Mine's the car. When I am in the car, I have permission to not be a Christian. It's from in, step inside the car. It's just like a little bubble there. So every other square inch, Jesus is Lord, but in the car, I am king. My anger can run wild. I can be aggressive. It's not okay. We all have places like that in our lives. So where is it for you? Where are you tempted to live as if it doesn't matter that Jesus is king? At work? When you're with the boys? With that one friend? Do a good job of keeping my tongue tame and not giving myself to gossip, except with her, you know, and then that's just the whole basis of our relationship. But that's okay, that's just one place. With your phone? Where is it? Kids, how about you? I'm pretty respectful when it comes to my teachers, but my parents, or vice versa, with my parents, but my teachers? I'm pretty good at how I speak to those who don't know Jesus or people at church, but my wife, my husband, my kids. Aren't there places in your life where you're tempted to let yourself go? We all are. We're tempted to be hypocrites. We're tempted to be pagans, and if not pagans, hypocrites. And then we're just right back in Romans 2, which we've already talked about, right? So the pagans let themselves run wild, and then there's the hypocrites. And then you graduate from 
pagan to hypocrite to judgmental jerk. And it's a cycle, but this is just the way that our temptations run. What's our hypocrisy? Well, we'll have an answer to our lawlessness that makes us feel better about ourselves. It's called legalism. Here's how it works. As long as I make God's standard into one that I can keep, a bunch of boxes that I can tick, I am fully justified in giving myself permission to sin in the ways that I like to sin. In fact, what's better is if I can make rules for myself that are sort of higher than God's laws and I can feel like I'm going above and beyond over here, then I definitely have permission to let loose over here. We treat holiness and godliness like something we can compartmentalize. I'll be holy over here in all of these places, this far and no farther, but this place over here, nope. In fact, I'll go above and beyond your standards. Whatever it is, I'll one-up one God. I'll one-up God's word. What does he say? What's the standard? I'll go above and beyond. I'll make sacrifices so that I can feel good about this little thing over here that I don't want to give up, that I don't want to repent of, that I don't want to change. We do things like that all the time, don't we? Godliness is not something that can be compartmentalized. Not really. So what are the examples of the kinds of things that you do that you give up? Places where you set a high standard for yourself, where you tick in a box, where you feel really great about yourself so that you can give yourself over to sin over here. Churches do this sort of thing. You ever been in a church? I, I was at a... Um, well, I won't tell you the circumstances, but I was at a church one time where you weren't allowed to dance, you weren't allowed to drink alcohol, you weren't allowed to do all kinds. There's a whole set of standards, like the sort of classic, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't go, go with girls who do, all that sort of thing. I was talking to the pastor and I was like, well, half the church is committing adultery. We set standards that make us feel, it's, it's part of the joke, right? You know that old joke, why do you, you know, pick your, you know, why do Baptist churches or Presbyterian churches or whatever forbid dancing? It might lead to fornication. False. I blew the joke. Why do they forbid fornication? It might lead to dancing. That was the joke. I ruined it. <clears throat> but here's what happens in churches. Here's what happens in churches. Now, that's a church out there. That's not us, right? Okay, but any church can devolve into a club of socially acceptable sins and socially unacceptable sins, where we have standards that we think if we tick all these boxes and we go above and beyond over here, that gives us permission to let ourselves go over there, right? Just keep raising the standard. A lot of churches set standards about schooling. We all better be homeschooling. When we take that box, and in this particular kind of curriculum too, right? So we have permission over here to be judgmental jerks. Everybody that doesn't hit our standard. 
In the meantime, what happens to the grace of God? Paul says grace reigns, but the grace of God ends up being tucked away in a corner. Minimized, hidden, put away, pulled out on Easter and Christmas so, because we feel bad about ourselves. But our whole church culture becomes about our own standards of righteousness and has nothing to do with God's standard of righteousness. And so we have to minimize grace and hide her, tuck her away, be embarrassed of her. And our lives become graceless, and our churches become graceless, and we lose hope for ourselves. And we have no hope to hold out to anyone else. We tend to treat grace then like the problem. And grace is not the problem. Grace is the solution. Grace is the answer. What's the problem? It's not grace. It's sin. It's us. It's our hearts. That's the problem. And we're just super sneaky. We don't need less grace. We need more. What we need is to be born again and to have our hearts changed so that we begin to see Grace isn't the problem, sin is. Sin is what enslaves us. And there is freedom in obedience to the God who loves us, who saves us, who cares for us, rather than to our own selfish, sinful desires that would destroy us. The problem with the uh, antinomian, we call them, I'm just throwing out all the big words today, the person who rejects the law of God in obedience to God, says, let sin reign, that grace may abound. And the legalist is the same. They're flip sides of the same coin. And neither of them believe it's actually good to obey God, that it's good. Neither of them believe it's worthwhile to walk in newness of life, not really. Neither of them believe that it's good to live by faith. Neither of them believe that freedom in Christ means freedom from sin and freedom to live righteously. And neither of them believe we can actually be changed. They don't actually have any hope. The lawless person just wants to sin and doesn't want to change. The legalist just doesn't believe change is possible. Here's what Paul says to every one of us. If you are in Christ, Jesus' life is your life. Jesus' death is your death. Jesus' resurrection is the assurance of your resurrection. Jesus' resurrection power is already at work in you. Jesus changes us. The old you dies. A new you rises. You are born again. Your desires change. If you loved sin and now you hate sin... If you never had any taste for God or the things of God, no love for the Bible, no love for church, and now you do, that's a miracle that has happened, that God has done. What is old has passed away and all things are new. The old you died with Jesus on the cross. The new you is a new creation in Christ, created new by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You're new. That's what baptism, he says, symbolizes. And that's why many of us in this room believe baptism is reserved until after that happens. If you've had that change happen and you've never been baptized, we would love to baptize you and your household. 
We'll walk over to the Y pool and we'll do it. Here's the point. If you belong to Jesus, if you love Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, your old life died. Your old life is over. And that means it's not something you have to relive. It's not something that you have to carry. Your old life, your sins, your past has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. And it's gone. And that is the beauty of God's grace. Not that it gives you a pass on sin, but that it allows you to forget what's behind and press on to lay hold of the calling that is yours in Christ. To leave it behind, to learn from it, and to forget it and move on. What matters is how do I follow Jesus from this point forward? How do I walk with Jesus today? How do I walk in newness of life? And it's not that our sins and our past don't have consequences that carry on in our lives. But if our goal is to be done with sin, we don't have to look back and be defined by the sins of our past. We can acknowledge them, we can own them, we can take responsibility for them, and then we can take them to the cross and we can leave them there. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. My old life is buried with Jesus in baptism. I've been washed. I am clean. I've been raised up in newness of life. Many of us in this room have a past that's unclean, that's dirty, that's broken, maybe in some cases bloody. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven and cleansed. In the sight of God, it's washed away. It's like the freshly fallen snow, the wool of the lamb. All these things in Scripture are given to us as pictures for a reason. The saints in heaven are depicted as wearing robes of white because they live perfect lives. No. It's not that they didn't do awful things in life. It's because those things got nailed to the cross and they don't bear them anymore. And if you're in Christ, the same is true of you. Well, Jake, I've sinned since I became a Christian. I have horrible sins even in the past couple years. That guy is dead. That girl is dead. She's nailed to the cross with all of her sins and all of her shame. Gone, dead, buried, finished. Jake, I still have scars. Yeah, you do. You've been hurt. You've caused pain. You've hurt people that you love. You've been hurt by people that love you or were supposed to love you. The beauty of the gospel is there's grace for that too. There's forgiveness. There is cleansing. There's healing. Well, Jake, I've committed crimes. Okay, you may have to deal with that. You may need to go to jail. Our sins, the grace of God doesn't get us out of the consequences in this life, but grace reigns. Jesus will walk with you as you face the consequences of your sins. He will give you the faith and the strength to face them. If you've confessed your sins and turned to Jesus in repentance, they don't stick to you. Jesus already answered for them. 
He already paid for all of them. Now, this is where it feels too good to be true, right? It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. The person writing this letter is guilty of murder. It's too good to be true. It's true. It's true. And that's where you're going to be tempted to say, yeah, okay, but. And this is where God's grace has to reign in your life. And you have to embrace and accept no buts, no qualifications. Grace reigns. But, but nothing. Grace reigns. But I murdered my baby. Grace reigns. But I have been impure. I am unclean. I am dirt. Grace reigns. I committed adultery. Grace reigns. I'm not saying there are no consequences. I feel like there should be consequences I want to pay. I feel like I need to pay. Well, there may be consequences. There may be consequences. You have scars, you have regrets. You hurt someone, you might need to go to jail. You committed adultery, you might get divorced. You've broken trust, you have things you have to work through. But when it comes to your relationship with God, grace reigns. Gone, dead, buried at the bottom of the ocean, forgotten. Nailed to the cross. You don't bear the internal condemnation of any of those sins any longer. Jesus bore it for you. Well, that sounds like you're giving people a pass to just go do what they want. Nope. No. No. By no means. Grace reigns, therefore, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And that's where we move from talking about having been saved, past tense, justified, to being saved, sanctified. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You fell in Adam, you are raised in Christ. Adam brought sin and death. Jesus bore that curse of sin and death for you. Jesus triumphed over sin and death and rose from the grave. That means he won. That means there's life for you in Christ. There is power for you. You have been set free from sin. You are free to obey God. You were a slave of sin, but you're not any longer. You had no desire to walk in God's ways. Now you do. You've been born again, regenerated, given a new heart, been set free from sin's condemnation and its power 
so that you can walk in newness of life. You're not perfect, but you're new. And you're free. And it's so easy to believe the lie that I'm not actually free. But you are. You are. If you are in Christ, the only power that sin has over you is the power you give it. And that is not what you were before. You were dead in your sins. You're in the struggle, in a process called sanctification. That's where we are. Forgiven and cleansed, not perfect yet. We're not there yet. But day by day, as we walk with Jesus, as we learn to nail our sins to the cross, we learn to consider our lives, ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. As we learn to walk in newness of life, we are day by day being freed of sin's power in our lives, of sin's reign and rule, of sin's tyranny. We're becoming more like Jesus. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. We will be glorified. If we're being sanctified, that means we've been transformed. And that's hope. Here's what happens when God transforms our lives. God's law is not lo no longer something we have to obey. It's something we get to obey. And that's the change that happens. It's something that we have the desire to obey and the power to obey. Not perfectly, but we understand that these are the good rules of our Father in heaven who loves us and cares for us, who wants what's best for us. We know he made us to walk in love and forgiveness, to be kind, to be holy and pure. We find joy in those things for the first time in our lives. We have strength and we taste and see the goodness of them. We want to be like Jesus. It's tiresome living in petty sin and lust and anger and bitterness. It's tiresome being selfish and entitled. It is, in fact, more blessed to give than receive. This is what we have been freed to. Jake, well, if I'm so new, if I'm so transformed, how come I still have those sinful desires in me? How come I still do sinful things? Don't worry, you don't have to lie about it. You don't have to lie about yourselves. That's real. God knows it. The Bible knows it. Paul understands it. It's coming, and we'll talk about it over the next couple of weeks. If you want to read ahead, go right ahead. Chapter 7. But we're going to live here for a minute. We're going to live with the reality that grace is real and that we are new. If you're in Christ, you're new. The old is gone, the new has come. And you have to embrace that. You have to accept it. You have to own it. You can't pretend like that's not true and expect to grow and change. That's what, it's just what he says. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. This is what has happened. This is how you change. You have to embrace this truth. Anything else is a lie. You have in Jesus the power to say yes to God and no to sin. That's the freedom that's yours in Christ. That's what the reign of grace looks like. Grace has to be a deep part of our culture here. We can't become those churches that sit and define our own standard that we can attain to. 
and our own sins that we're willing to live with. We have to fix our eyes on a trajectory of repentance and of putting sin to death and of constant growth. If we don't, we'll erect false standards of righteousness that suit us where we're at so we never have to change. And here's what will happen then. It will begin to exclude people that aren't like us. It will begin to exclude people that are starting from someplace different than us. It will excuse us from, continuing to, from needing to continue to grow. And God help us, we will be a people of grace. We will be a people who celebrate every victory, every win of everyone who's following Jesus, no matter where they're starting from. And we're not going to raise false standards of righteousness. We're not going to set a bar up here that you have to jump over in order to be in. Here's the bar. Grace reigns. We'll raise the standard of God's perfection that none of us attain to. We will all strive toward it. We will judge ourselves and we will help each other. Okay. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. It's picking right up. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are under law, since you are not under law but under grace. Don't let sin reign in your life. Don't present yourself to sin. Present yourself to God. Don't be ruled by sin. Don't let it have any dominion. You're not under the dominion of sin anymore. That's a lie. You're under the reign of grace. You're under the reign of Jesus. This is war. It's war for your soul. Sin does not reign. Don't let it reign. Sin has no authority over you, so give it no power. Don't act like sin still reigns in your life. It doesn't. It's dead. The old you is dead, crucified, buried, gone. Sin only has the power in your life that you give it. Give it nothing. Temptation is going to come and you're going to have to fight and you can't be passive and you can't be a victim. Sin will not stop acting like king, will not stop acting like it has rights. It will not stop acting like it reigns and rules over your life. It's not king. Jesus is king. You're under a reign of grace. Bring your heart and your mind and your life into conformity with that reality. So in your life, where is your fight? Right now. Where are you assaulted by fear and doubt? Where are you surrendering to sin? Where are you giving sin power in your life or giving yourself permission? Where are you compartmentalizing? Everywhere but the car, everywhere but the phone, everywhere but... Do not present yourself, your members, your body parts, as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't present any part of you as an instrument, as a tool for unrighteousness. Not your ears, 
Not your eyes, not your mouths, not your hands, not your stomach, not your feet, and nowhere in between. Nowhere in between. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members, your ears, your eyes, your mouths, your hands, your feet, everything in between. Your members, present them to God as instruments for righteousness. It will be one or the other. It will be one or the other. No neutral ground. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Fight to live righteously or give yourself over to sin. You're under grace, you're under sin. That's it. It will be one or the other. When our kids were little, we used to tell them their hands were made for fixing, for helping, and for protecting, not for destroying or hurting. Your hands are made for fixing and helping and protecting not for destroying, not for hurting, not for defiling. Your mouths are made for praise and for encouragement, for building one another up, not for gossip, not for slander, not for lies, not for tearing one another down. Present your members to God for righteousness. Don't celebrate sin, don't excuse it, don't hide it, don't tolerate it. Put it to death. Why? because you're under grace. You're under the reign of God's grace. You've had your relationship with God restored. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. You get to walk with God in newness of life by the Holy Spirit of God. And by the Spirit, we can put our sin to death. So learn to walk with God. He promises to walk with you. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Live under the reign of God's grace as if grace actually reigns because it does. That's the job. That's what we have to be. That's what we'll continue to talk about as we keep working through Romans. Let's pray.